You're listening to the West Side Podcast, a part of the L.A. International Church of Christ family of churches, worshiping God in L.A. since 1989. Hello, family. It's, uh, it's great to see everybody. I'm so excited. And Steve, man, it's not regular knucklehead. It's recovering knucklehead. So next time, it's not, it's not just a regular old knucklehead. Anybody can be a regular knucklehead. But uh, you see me, Josh? See, now Josh is the guy right there. He's straight. So I'm very excited to be with you guys tonight. And, Steve, I just want to tell you that, um, well, I want to tell everybody else, the way that Steve has interacted with me and taken care of me through this process from the first time he called and invited me to share this 40-day journey with you guys, it's been with, with great respect and generosity and just humility and made quite an impression on me. And I just want to thank Steve in front of everybody and his wife, Carrie, and just the way that they have um, invited me into their home and shared their family with me. And for a preacher to give up his pulpit, that's a big deal. But for a preacher to give up his pulpit seven weeks in a row when he probably had some other things going on before this was brought to him, it just says so much about um, about their heart. And so, Steve, thank you so much. And I, I don't take this lightly. It's humbling. It's an honor, and I want to do right by you and uh, and right by God, so I appreciate you. Um, so tonight we go on a journey, and I'm going to invite you to join me in a process that I developed in 2012. I was setting off to start my new ministry, and this is after a roller coaster ride of a ministry career, which I'm going to let you in on in a little bit. But this was a time where God had called me. In 2011, I started the Power of Peace Project, 501c3. 2012, it started moving, and so did I. And so I was, it was planes, trains, and automobiles for the next five or six years, literally just around the country and around the world, and chasing this crazy dream. And I I had to have more. The way that I had come up and what led to my fall, which was a very public fall, There were cracks in my foundation and there were problems. And now all of a sudden God had brought me back, the true prodigal son. I had taken everything that he had blessed me with and I had squandered it. And finally I came back to be a hired hand and he has just, he really did kill the fattened calf. And he, he blessed me so much more than I deserve. But I was out there on the road and the old tricks weren't working anymore. A little quiet time in the morning reading the Bible, a lot of the same stuff I read over and over and over and have the same kind of prayer. It wasn't going to get me through what I was getting ready to go through, this ride that he had called me on. So I started putting together this process. And tonight I'm thrilled to be able to introduce you to it. And I'm just going to ask you to set aside your preconceived notions Set aside your judgments and what you think this might be or what you heard it was, or if you think it's just like every other Suspend your judgment and trust it. Just trust the process and see what happens. And at the end of 40 days, if it doesn't work for you, I'll refund you your pain and misery. And you can, I'm just kidding. I would never do that. So, uh, Miss Asia, I just found the wisest woman in the whole room. <laughs> I love looking at these thumbnails, man. It's just beautiful. It's beautiful. So, okay, you distracted me. So anyway, this is going to be a process where we're going to ride together, and (laughs) these seven steps, they became a way of life for me. So it wasn't like, okay, I want to write a book on prayer. How am I going to construct it? This was more like, man, this process has transformed my life. I think I'll share it, 
And there's a difference in those two things. So there came a time where all of a sudden I would just roll out of my bed onto my knees. And like before I ran to the bathroom, before I did anything, just to get up, you roll out of your bed onto your knees and your first waking thoughts go something like this. Good morning, Father. I want to see you today. I want to hear from you today. I want to feel you today. I'm your instrument. Just play. If this is my last day, make it my best day. Have your way with me. I got to go to the bathroom. Peace. (laughs) Something like that. (laughs) And so it's just the first few moments are like, hey, it's me and you. And this isn't my quiet time, my knees, but I'm getting in a posture of humility to say, boom, I'm training my brain. Who I'm going to call Uncle G. We're going to do a lot of work around the brain on this little project. I call him Uncle G, but I'm not going to tell you why right now. So anyway, and then I started writing down my what I called impossible prayers. And these are things that I didn't believe were possible. So you've got a limit to your faith. OK, there's certain things that you've seen happen and your faith is higher in those areas. But then you find one thing and all of a sudden you're going to get to a part where it's and I don't believe that that's possible. That's kind of like I believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. I mean, I believe in you, Jesus, but I don't think you can do this right here. Okay, that's an impossible prayer. And we're going to come up with at least 10 of them, very specific. And we're going to talk about your big thing, like the one thing. If God gave you the breakthrough that you seek, and I'm talking about the one that you know of that nobody else knows that you're afraid, man, if I give this up. And don't even go to a bad place like some pet sin. I'm just talking about it can be fear. It can be unforgiveness. It could be a character weakness. It could be something that you've known that you know that if you break through this thing, you're going to go into a whole new stratosphere. And that's what we're chasing on this thing. It's going to be a ride. So you're going to you're going to write those down, but you're going to review them every day and we're going to get them locked into the front of our brain so that when we leave the prayer closet and go out into your day. You don't forget the things you prayed that morning and they're not so vague in general that you don't can't even tell when they show up. We're talking about specific things that you really, really want that you need that God is saying, give me your desires. I'll grant them to you. Tell me what you want. I'm your Abba, your father, your daddy. Come to me. And so we're going to present them, but they're going to be a little scary. And we're going to look at them every day and it's going to start getting real. And then we're going to start paying attention. And the more you review those things every day and the more you say, show me yourself today, you're going to start noticing evidence around you that he's working. And you're going to start noticing things that you hadn't been seeing. Because I don't know, when we've been around the sun a few more times and and keep going to church and keep going to church and keep going to church, man, the old tricks just don't work anymore. And I got to the point where I had to see God and I started asking for signs and I started asking for miracles. We're going to change the energy of the word miracle instead of it just being reserved for Lazarus or Joshua praying and the sun standing still. We're going to take that word and we're going to say everything's a miracle or nothing is. And every time God intervenes in my life and I see him stop and do something for me, I'm going to claim that as a miracle. And I'm going to start to believe in the impossible. And then this thing's going to keep rolling. And then this is the meat right here. As you see the evidence and all of a sudden the text arrives and it reminds you of one of your impossible prayers, or you have a conversation with somebody, you run into a random stranger and he says something, you're going to write it down as a fingerprint of God. And you're going to be able to record the the way you saw God work today. And it's going to become very, very real. 
We're going to start repenting quickly. 40 days in a row, I'm going to challenge you to repent as quickly as you can every time you notice that you've slipped. Don't waste time in guilt and don't waste time in shame and don't sit there and wrestle with yourself. Am I going to call? Am I going to tell somebody? Just repent. Just keep your eyes open. We're not going to let 40 days, 40 days in a row, repent fast and keep your eyes open so we can see the glory of God. You'll be amazed if you keep it cleaned out. And we're going to replace blaming, excuse making and complaining with gratitude because gratitude is the fertile soil where miracles grow. And this thing I'm telling you, trust it, try it. I dare you to give it 40 days in a row. 40 days is long enough to change a habit and see we've got habits. I'm going to ask you to challenge the habit. If it serves you, protect it. If it does not serve you anymore, erase it and replace it with something that does. These seven steps, you can replace the things that may be. Now, I'm not going to assume that everybody's in a state of dull. I'm just saying this pandemic thing has been a trip for churches because we've had to pivot. and We've had to connect like this, but more than ever, we're not able to really feel one another yet. Now we're finally starting to come back together, but people are coming out of all kind of different pandemic experiences. And spiritually, I think there's a lot of people and I'm, I'm hearing there's a lot of struggles with addiction. I've been starting to do a lot of work around addiction and mental health. There's a lot of depression. There's a lot of anxiety and fear. I mean, these are uncertain times. This affects our ability to connect with God. And so this is going to bust us free. But I got to introduce you to my partner. This is my partner, Roots. Now, I don't know if any of the people in L.A. have met my partner yet, but I, I do call him him. He's a he's a he's a extension of me. And if you ever see me on a stage, hopefully I'll get to come out there. You'll see Roots. He'll be with me. If you see me in a hopefully you never see me in prison. <laughs> but every time I get to go into prison, hey, Roots is with me. I'll walk across prison yards and you hear brothers go roots all the way across. They love him, man. He's a rock star. Man, if I'm at a corporate event, roots is with me. If I'm preaching at a church, roots is with me. Man, we've been around the world together, me and roots. But he's not just a cool stick that's adorned and beautified, but he is cool. But it's the story. See, I was working in these streets down in Atlanta that really, really tough streets and working with kids doing some youth gang intervention stuff. And there's a homeless brother down there, and his name was Roots. And Roots would always come and want to help us out. He was a cool young brother, kind of a little shorter than me, dark skin, long dreads, cool beard, rock star glasses, missing a stem. And he just was cool to death. And he would always want to help. And so be like, Mr. Kid, let me serve, let me serve. And so we put a little money in his pocket, and he became like one of our little misfit band of brothers. There was a bunch of us. And he, he befriended me. The least of these befriended me, and he was my buddy. And he'd always come up and he'd say, Mr. Kit, you need a stick. And I'd be like, why do I need a stick? And he said, man, if you're going to work these streets, you got to have some protection. And so he always had a stick. He's like, let me make you one. And I said, okay. So it's about a week later. He comes up and he gives me roots. And the reason I call him roots is because the real roots signed it down here at the bottom. And it touched me. You know, he cared about me. It's for my protection. But it wasn't until I started thinking about the story of this branch. Because I, I hold this thing up and I say, what is it? And people say, a cane, a stick, a staff. You know, it's like Gandhi. It's like Moses. 
And nobody has ever said it's a branch, but fundamentally, this is a branch. It's a branch that was at the top of a 100-year-old oak tree, just living the life, cool breeze, sunshine, mist and rain, birds perched out on him, and roots was just connected to the source. But then something happened, and it was a storm, or it was a lightning strike, or it was the, the chop at the root of the tree, but something knocked roots out of his purpose, and he lay flat on his back, and in an instant, he became trash, because that's what we do with branches. You know, I live about a mile and a half off this square, and we got a bunch of big oak trees. And when branches fall on the, to the ground, I don't go, ah, a treasure. It's like, no, nah, I just clean it up, put it in a pile, and they haul it off probably to burn it. And so Roots laid flat on his back in the middle of a nasty street in downtown Atlanta, trampled on, driven over, kicked aside, destined to be burned. Except one guy was looking for him. And it was a beautiful homeless brother named Roots. And Roots was looking for the perfect instrument, it had to be the right size and the right shape, and it had to be straight the way he wanted it, but have character. And then he went to work on it, man, and he cut off both ends, and then he cut and carved grooves in it, and then he chiseled it down, he weatherproofed it, painted it, and weatherproofed it again. He put so much time and care into this thing, it was an expression of love. And so, man, I loved it, and I started taking it, and I'd take it into schools, and I'd say, what's his name? And they yell, Roots, and I'd take it into prisons, and I'd say, what's his name? And they yell, Roots, and I'd take it into churches, and I'd yell, what's his name? And y'all yell, Roots. Roots became a rock star. He went on a world tour, the broken branch that went on the world tour. <laughs> and I wish Roots, his creator, could have experienced it, but he didn't. He wandered off and went to another part of town, and I couldn't find him. And I was traveling the world, and I'd have pictures with all these convicts and these prisons, and Roots was there. And I wanted him to know that he was changing lives, and I couldn't find him. Just a few weeks ago, well, a couple months ago, I got a call, and Brother Roots had died. And he had got him a job, and he had got him a little spot for him and his lady friend, who became his wife. She's disabled. And one night he was coming back from work on his scooter and he was killed by a drunk driver. And I lost my buddy Roots. So now this thing, this really means a lot to me. But what it represents is the you that you have not met yet. It's, it's the you living inside that has not expressed itself yet. It's the branch that has not yet fallen to the ground and become. Because it's when we fall flat on our back that dreams spring to life. And that's what happened for me. I was the least likely guy to become a preacher. <laughs> Nobody saw that coming. Nobody was grooming me for the ministry when I was a teenager. I was a wild, wild child. I was an athlete. That kept me out of too much trouble. But, I mean, I got arrested five times and never had to change my clothes. One was pretty dang serious. The other one just being a knucklehead. I told you I'm a recovering knucklehead. And I, I come by it honest. Addiction runs through my family line. And my dad and his dad and his dad. And so it doesn't fall far from the tree and it didn't miss me. And so, man, I got thirsty at a young age. And as a, as a young teen, 12, 13, I drank for the first time. Man, I wanted to do it again. There's something different about people like me. There's about one out of 10 of us and there's somebody on this call with as many devices as we have on this phone. One out of 10 of us have this little thing. It's a genetic difference. It says just one more. Six is good. Twelve is better. We can go one hour. We can go two. <laughs> Let's do it one more time. And so I just have this little thing and just, just a little extra, a little bit more, one more time. And those that are built like that, 
man, life can be a roller coaster ride. And it doesn't have to be drugs and alcohol. Addiction can be anything that you want to stop doing that you can't stop. And it's affecting your life. And see, we're going to break the chains of some of those things. But see, I was 25. My dad had passed of this disease. And then at 25, I was out of gas, man. It was my first burnout, but it wouldn't be my last. And so at 25, I'm trying to stop drinking. And I'm in a world, and I don't know God. I mean, I, I'm just like, man, at the end of my rope at 25, life's supposed to be just, it's about to take off. And drinking and drugging had brought me to my knees. And God sent just the right brother into my life playing basketball. He just had a shine on him, kind of like Kenny. And he just looked different. And I pursued him, man. After three days, he always remembered my name. He played hard. He was a good basketball player, man. And I was cussing. And, and so I followed him to the water fountain. I said, what is your deal? And he's like, what do you mean? I said, what do you do? And he said, I'm a minister. I said, I knew it. I said, where's your church? He said, downtown Atlanta. I said, can I come with you this Sunday? He said, yes, you can. And I cried halfway through the sermon. And I said, will you please study the Bible with me? And I studied with him every day as quick as he could. And I got baptized within about 10 or 12 days. They tried to get me to wait till the next day. I said, heck no, take me to the river. It was one o'clock in the morning. I had found my God. And I love hard. I don't know about you, but I got one speed. It's all out. I don't do anything a little bit. God did not make me that way. My appetite is large. And I'm not talking about food. I'm just talking about life, right? And so if I'm if I'm hooked on bad stuff, I'm going to tear some stuff up. If I'm hooked on good stuff, I'm going to save the world. That's, too, that's it. I don't know if anybody out there is like that. But, man, that's my life. And so I was ready. I was so ready. I was so in love with Jesus. Within nine months, they put me in the ministry, and I began to preach. And I didn't know that I had a gift. I'd been sitting on it my whole life. And all of a sudden, it just, boom, it just leapt out. And everything that I was looking for showed up. You guys were the church, man. You accepted me. You validated me. Growing up in my household, I wanted that so bad. It was an insecure place. Didn't know when. You know, I didn't want to make anybody angry. You know, alcoholism, it, it can be angry. And it can make a little kid confused and not know who he is. So I became whatever you wanted me to be. So when I got to preach and y'all responded, it was intoxicating. But it was real. It was real. I love Jesus and I love telling you about him. But the problem was the more that I preached, the bigger the dang crowds got. And the bigger the crowds got, they promoted me and gave me a bigger church. And the bigger those got, they promoted me again and gave me a couple of churches. And it was a heady ride. By the time I was 33, I was in charge of about 4,000 people, and my talent outran my character. And I would stay in the ministry another seven years, but slowly begin to lose my heart. I started watching the brothers around me that were being raised up, and I had kind of a jealous eye. And I loved them, but there was selfish ambition inside of me because this was my whole identity, man. Being the preacher was my identity. And so if I preached a great sermon, I felt close to God. But if I didn't have it that day, I was terribly wounded. And I was chasing your approval. And I traded alcohol and drugs for the praise of men. And you laughed at all my jokes. And you stood and cheered when I got done preaching. And you lined up to come and shake my hand, tell me how fine a man I was. And it took its toll on me. And all of a sudden, I hit the end of that little run. And then, you know, our church went through some turbulence. 
and right about the time that I had a meltdown. And I'd counseled people that had gone through depression before. And as ministers, you know, you've got to take care of people, but you can't always feel them. You can you can have compassion, but it's hard to have empathy if you haven't experienced it. And I'm telling you, depression came calling and visited me and it knocked me flat down. And this is right about the time the church was starting to rumble and the foundation was shaken. And I was I was slipping those last few years, man, I got thirsty and I was playing games. I don't know if there's anybody out there that's seeing how close you can get to the fire. That was my game. And so I was playing those crazy games that alcoholics play, trying to control it. It's maddening. It's exhausting. The guilt and the shame. And then I'll never do it again. And that whole game you play, it's not just for the average folks. It's for anybody. This thing's not a respecter of persons. And it it involves the decision maker. And I started making some poor choices. And so I finally decided, man, everybody was getting out. A lot of people got out of the ministry in Atlanta, and I decided to do it too. But I didn't do it out of conviction. I did it because I didn't have any more gas in my tank. I had been relying on me for quite a, quite a long time, and I was tired. And so I got out. I walked into a world that I wasn't ready for. And I went through – now, I qualify it by saying this. I guarantee you there's people on this call, as many as we have, that would trade their problems with me in a second because there's been some real suffering. People have been through true tragedies, and but I'm just going to share my story, and it's not better or worse. It's just my story, and you've got one too. It's the most fascinating thing about you is your story. Man, we bring people to Jesus through our stories. Jesus was a storyteller first and foremost. And when we tell the story of our lives, people can't help but be drawn to us as long as it's real. See, I let you think things about me that weren't true, that weren't real. Inside, I was that wounded little boy trying to figure out who in the heck he was. I just had a whole bunch of people looking at me. I did my best, but it wasn't enough. And so I left. And so I went into a world I wasn't ready for. And in one year, my 40th year, divorce, rehab, bankruptcy, it was a tough year. And so I happened to be the guy that was kept in Atlanta. I've been around the sun 57 times, and all of it has been in and around Atlanta. I know a lot of people here. A lot of people know me here. So when I fell from grace, it was public. There was rumors. There was gossip. There was some slander. They were hurt people because during that time in our church, people were mad anyway, and they had a right to be mad. And I gave them a lot of reason to be mad because I went out and acted a fool and just, boom, just fell. So I went out on my balcony in my little 800 square foot apart. I, I I was feeling so sorry for myself, but I was the one that brought it on myself. These were all my choices. And so I'm in my little place and seeing my kids on the weekend and drinking every night to stop the pain. And so I go out under my on my balcony and I look up at the stars and it was the most real prayer I would ever pray. And I said, is this how it works? You know, I'm going to give you the best years of my life and then you're going you're gonna to take everything away from me. Shoot, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. <laughs> I'm out. I'm not going to I'm not going to see you anymore. I'm not going to listen to you. I'm not going to read about you. I'm not going to talk to you. And I'm sure not going to see your people. And so just leave me alone. I'm done. Mouth, and I split. And I look at that prayer today, and I think it was one of the most important prayers I've ever prayed because I was just gut wrenchingly honest with him about how I felt. 
and he let me do it. And I went on a run. And I'm talking about it was a reckless year of danger as I went back to that dude. That guy that I thought died in the Chattahoochee River when I made my great confession, I thought he was gone. That joker had been doing push-ups in the parking lot waiting for me to get back to the world. And when I went back out there, oh, he was ready to ride. And we did. And it came to a crashing halt one night. I was going places. I never should have gone. And I didn't want to see y'all. And so I was going to places I knew you wouldn't be and just trying to hide. And so I'm in a place and it's late and I've been in there most of the day. It's a, I'm in a club and it's two 30 in the morning and the lights come on and I'm just racked. And once again, I'm about to go and just pour myself into my car and drive. Now people that hit folks with their cars, they go to prison. And there's no reason that I never hurt anybody with my car other than God had his hands all over me. It doesn't make any sense. But this night, I'm walking out of this place, and I don't think I'd ever been recognized. At least nobody had ever confronted me. And so as I'm walking out of this place, all of a sudden I hear somebody say, Big Kit. And I look down. I'm expecting to see somebody I know. And I don't know this guy from Adam. And he looks up at me, and he's laughing at me. He's laughing that I'm in this place and he's laughing that I'm in this condition. And I felt the judgment and that I deserved, <laughs> but I was mad. And so I looked at him and I said, who are you? And this guy, he looked up at me with this weird grin on his face. And I hand to God, he said, Beelzebub. <laughs> he said, Beelzebub. Now, anybody that doesn't know you, Asia, you, <laughs> Miss Asia, you hear me? I mean, anybody that's wondering who that is, you know, the Prince of Demons, the one Jesus talked about. And I'm thinking to myself, man, who makes a joke like that? <laughs> What's your name, man? Lucifer. <laughs> Nobody makes that kind of joke. Beelzebub. And so I poked Beelzebub in the chest and cussed him and, and walked out and got in my car and everything is spinning. I can't figure out what's happening. And so I start driving up this long stretch to try to get back to the house that this is the last time I would ever stay in my house. I didn't know it. And so I almost get there, and I get near where I'm going, and all of a sudden I just pass out. And I slump to the right, and my car goes, and it hits a guardrail. Bam! And this guardrail is there, but there's not many guardrails on this long road. But at this spot where there is serious problems, if I go off there, there's a guardrail. I didn't, I didn't pass out a second later or a second earlier. I'd have been dead. I passed out at just the right moment because God is in the details. He had, this is my road to Damascus evening. I just didn't know it and smash. So I'm banged up a little bit. My car's messed up. I'm out. I'm on the road. And all of a sudden blue lights come up, pulls over. I don't remember much. It's kind of foggy. He gets my license. He takes me and he puts me in the front seat with no cuffs. Now, has anybody ever heard of that? I didn't even know there was a front seat. I'm, I'm sitting by the computer with no cuffs on where I pass out. I mean, how bad off you got to be where you pass out in the front seat of a cop car. But I would be absolutely disrespectful and remiss if I did not say I acknowledge fully that if I was a brother of a little bit more color, I would not have been in the front seat and I would have had cuffs on. And that's my story. And so no judgment uh, how anybody says that, but I would never tell that story and disrespect my brothers and sisters of more color 
because it didn't make any sense. He drives me. And the next thing I know, he's waking me up. He opens the door and I'm at my mailbox. The brother has driven me home. He doesn't even write me a ticket and lets me go, which is horrible police work. (laughs) If I had gone and done something bad, are you kidding me? The next day, I don't understand what's going on. My car's gone. I can't remember much. I mean, this is a a horrible day. It'd be the, the worst day of my life at that point. And I get a call from the collision center, and they say, Mr. Cummings, we have your car. And I'm like, how'd you get it? He said an officer called it in. Now, I don't know how to explain all that, but I'm a pretty simple dude sometimes. And so the way I see it is I met the devil in a club and an angel drove me home. That's what God does. He stalks us. (laughs) He's the divine stalker. (laughs) He wouldn't let me go. I ran as fast as I could to get away from him. He was faster. I ran into him. <laughs> I backslid as fast as I could, and bam, he was behind me. I ran into him. Man, I got as high as a human being can possibly get, and bam, he was above me. I ran into him, and I went to the depths of despair, as deep as I could go, and boom, I ran into him. He was below me. He stalked me and chased me, which proves I did not fall away. I wandered from the truth because somebody brought me back and rescued me from a multitude of sins. There are brothers and sisters that are struggling now, and God is stalking them. His love is fierce. It's not the prodigal son. Prodigal means lavish. It's the prodigal father, lavish in his love. He will chase you. He will not let you go. He spoke to me, and it was my moment, and he was saying, son, It's time. So I had my last drink, December 27, 2005, the same day of the year that my brother Roots was killed. He was killed on the 27th. I got sober 15 years ago on the 27th. Now it's it's his freedom day, the least of these. I'm not quite sure he wasn't an angel. I believe in angels. But it was time. So I went back under those same stars. And I was like, I'm ready to talk now. (laughs) I've been beaten into a state of reasonableness. (laughs) And I said, and this is the second most important prayer I would ever pray. I said, I don't know if you would ever see fit to let me preach the word again. You know, I didn't think it was possible. I was disqualified. And everybody in Atlanta felt like I was disqualified. And I understand. I'll never be a pastor or elder or deacon or a teacher. That's not for me. I'm divorced and remarried to my angel. God, you talk about angels. Oh, my gosh. You wait till you meet my wife. She's a bundle of dynamite, just tiny little things, country, southern dynamite. And she's perfect for me. (laughs) She rescued me. But that was quite a story. Kit's back. He's remarried. And they knew my drama. And it was was the source of contention. And I I, I was about to say I wasn't mad. I was mad. But I shouldn't have been. I brought it all on myself. And so when I prayed that prayer, I said, if you ever let me preach again, I'll go to the harassed and helpless. Yeah, I'll I'll go to the hungry and the thirsty and the naked and the sick and the stranger and the prisoner. I'll go to the people nobody else wants to preach to. Maybe they'll have me. And then I, I meant that prayer. And then I went and I started hustling, trying to support my family, doing things that 
I mean, can you see me as a banker? <laughs> as a banker? I was just trying to hustle. Wendy says no. <laughs> yeah, I was just trying to. It was miserable because I couldn't preach anymore, and I knew it's 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 maddening when you know what your gift is, you know what your purpose is, you know what your passion is, and you're not allowed to do it anymore, and you got nobody to blame but yourself. That's where I found myself. So I said, send me to them. And then I forgot. It took three years for God to to show up on that prayer. We're doing 40 days. Some prayers take three years. And who cares? It takes what it takes. He answers the way he answers. Don't ever say, God doesn't answer my prayers. Yes, he does. He is answering them. And it's not always no. If you don't see it, no. If we're not paying attention, we don't see how it comes. So it took three years for those seeds to bear fruit. And all of a sudden, I get reached out to on Facebook. It's a beautiful sister that that uh, she wasn't a single mom, but she was in a, um, a a tough situation. And she had beautiful kids. And they happened to be of Hispanic descent. And they were in a church that I led back in the late 90s. And there was a little boy. His name was Luis. Luis, the kingdom kid. You know, he hadn't been around long, but he's in the little kingdom classes and stuff. And then he'd come in to be with the big folks, and, and he'd wait in line. He'd come, Mr. Kitt, this is what I learned from your sermon. And he's just he's just beautiful, Luis, man. And so he's like my little brother. And then I went off to lead another church, and I lost him. He went on to high school, and I lost him. Ten years later, I'm in a dreamless state of life. I can't preach anymore. I'm dying inside because of it. And all of a sudden, I talked to his mom. Will you go see Luis? I said, yeah, where's he at? He's down at Gwinnett County Jail. He's looking at a gang-related murder charge. He had become a gang leader for MS-13. And I don't know if you know much about the gang life, but MS-13 is the worst of the worst. And this is my little brother. Okay, so now it's personal. And so I'm like, yes, I'll go see him. This is a death-eligible case, meaning that the feds were going to try to end his life and make an example out of MS-13. That's my guy. And so I didn't even think about it, man. I rushed to the, the jailhouse that night, and I got to see him, and I expected this little boy to walk out. And a little boy didn't walk out at all. This big man walked out, and he was covered with tats, and his eyes looked like they had died. But as soon as he saw me, he softened. And then there was that big smile. He light up a room. And we hugged and we hugged and we hugged. And that set into motion two years of studying with him through the glass. I said, I ain't going to read your book anymore. And he had me reading it to Luis. I'm not going to talk to you anymore. And he had me crying in prayer for Luis. He was changing me while he was changing him. And, man, it was like I had prayed, God. Will you let me preach again? He goes, yeah, to one person. I got somebody I need you to preach to. And you know what? <laughs> I'll cry every time. Y'all got to be used to this. I, I cry all the time. Today's Cinco de Mayo. Today's the day he got baptized behind the glass. And it was 11 years ago. So my organization's birthday is today because a hated, feared, forgotten MS-13 gang leader charged with murder, looking at a death penalty, he received amazing grace. You know what counting the cost looked like? Something like this. Luis, are you willing to die for Jesus? And he said, 
I've been willing to die for my gang for 10 years. I'll die for Jesus. And they crossed him out. He became, he flipped and he became the, the star witness. And MS-13 crossed him out, which means that he got a green light on him. And they even texted me <laughs> when you get a text from MS-13. I can't tell you what it said, not on a nice church show. It was a crazy time, man. We had cops in the cul-de-sac waiting out. And I'm like, sorry, baby. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I mean, it was a crazy time because Luis was standing up. He was willing to die for Jesus. He'll be home in four years. I testified for him at his sentencing. And instead of getting 30, he got 20 because he helped me build this ministry called the Power Peace Project. So today is his day forever. They're, they're celebrating Cinco de Mayo next door at this bar. And I can hear them right now partying. And they're partying for my brother. That's the way I see it. I don't know where he's at. I just know I love him. Can't wait to see him. A couple more things. I needed a dream. I can't overstate the power of a dream. And I needed to see God. I had to see him. I couldn't just read about him, sing about him, talk to him, hoping he was hearing me. I had to see him. This concept of the Holy Spirit needed to get real for me. I mean, Paul was getting ready to go into the province of Asia. He had a whole mission team lined up. And they had funded it and ready to go, a strategy, a business plan, ready to go. He takes a nap, gets up and says, nope, we're going to Macedonia. Why? Because the spirit kept us from going to Asia. And then he just told me that we're going down here. And that's where Lydia was and the jailer was. And the whole Philippi church exploded because Paul had a relationship with the Holy Spirit. That same spirit that, that Jesus called the comforter and the counselor and the advocate, he said he'll warn you, he'll teach you, he'll guide you, he'll remind you, he'll give you words to say, he'll open doors, he'll close doors, he'll protect you. Man, he's your ride or die. He's your best friend on the road, Paul. And you see Paul with this relationship with the Holy Spirit, and I wanted it. And so I went on this crazy dream, and God took me into a prison, and magic happened. And I'm going to save most of that story for the next time when I'm going to introduce you to some of your brothers and you're going to get to see them. He took me in over a hundred prisons and jails and detention centers and rehab facilities and homeless shelters over the last 12 years, hundreds, 10,000 inmates that I've gotten to work with 10,000 kids. It's been the great work of my life and the least of these literally saved my life. See, Jesus didn't say, go take care of the least of these because they have a really hard time. He said, go take care of the least of these because whatever you do for them, you do for me. And whatever you do for me changes you. We need the least of these because they save us. They transform us. You try making friends with a homeless person and not be changed. You try go visit somebody in prison and not be changed. I dare you to. You go take care of somebody in hospice and help them die. It will change you. You go help an alcoholic or an addict and just sit with them and hold them when they're shivering. It will change you. It's not them. They don't need us. We need them. They've already got Jesus said, I'm, I'm with them. And then he said, watch out for angels. I'm sending them to serve those who will inherit eternal life. And I think they hide out among the least of these and see how we treat them. Oh, the least of these saved me. It started with a gang leader. Then it became 10,000 convicts and gangsters. And it became my safe place because I had so much shame. 
Man, when I let y'all down and I hurt y'all, so much shame. And I had to get it out, but I couldn't. I wasn't ready to come to church. I felt like it was going to be more judgment and gossip and just all the stuff. Most of it was me. And so God said, I'm going to give you, I'm going to let you preach. (laughs) And he put me in the worst prison in the state of Georgia in the middle of a gang war and said, that's your church. And I kept going every week, twice a week, midweek, (laughs) just like midweek Sunday service, just different days. And we worked, man, and we put together a program and rival gangs started coming together and we taught them conflict resolution and about the Prince of Peace. And peace came to that prison for such a powerful time that it won institution of the year that year in the state of Georgia went from worst to first. And God sent me on my way. But I'll close with this story and then we'll open it up, throw it back to Steve. So I was getting shade as they say and i was i was encountering opposition from my own brothers and i was preaching again i needed a barnabas you know paul his ministry which i admire so much because he was out there doing stuff that they hadn't told him to do he's out there preaching the gentiles and it was quite a stir and every time they called paul back to the home church he was in trouble They'd have a council and tell him what he could and couldn't do. And, and Paul would just be like, I got to go do what God's called me to do. And so he's preaching where, where Christ hadn't been preached. He's planting churches. He didn't have a home church. He had all these little groups that he would go out there. And he had his ride or die fellas, Silas and Timothy and Demas and Aristarchus and John Mark and Barnabas and these this faithful band of brothers. Then he'd split with them and they'd have a little turmoil. And then they'd come back around him and Paul would keep rolling. Paul and the Holy Spirit and a few band of brothers and lots of home churches. Jerusalem did not understand it. But Paul, he was driven, but he caught a lot of flack. And I just felt like, man, that's what it felt like because I needed a Barnabas. And it turned out to be Ben Barnett. Some of y'all probably know Ben. And Ben is uh, now the lead lead evangelist of hope i think is the name of the title and what a great brother to fill those shoes and so but ben was the guy that i reached out to in my shame and he said brother god's not through with you yet and i said yeah but man am i disqualified and he said not from preaching he said you preach and i said what am i going to do I mean, you're not going to let me lead the marriage. That probably ain't a good idea. And I, I'm a little old to lead the kids. You know, I didn't know about singles. I don't say I got past that mark. You know, I did that about a million years ago. And so I said, what are you going to do? And he said, and I want you to hear this. I mean, think about this advice and be refreshed. He said, brother, I want you to go out into the world and find out what God is up to and come back and tell us. And I said, you going to pay me for that? <laughs> I was like the best gig I ever got. And so I went to a homeless shelter and started preaching there. And we made a church, man, built a choir and brought them to the church, put them on stage. I mean, it was just we had homeless dudes all in the church. That was wild. And then I found prison ministry. And, oh, my gosh, that lit me up. We started baptizing dudes behind the wire. Eight brothers got baptized and they became my church. And so on Wednesday nights, I wasn't at midweek. I was down at the homeless shelter and I was going to the prison all the time. And it just started creating drama. And I was getting pushback from the brothers that, that man, I just thought, man, I'm back. But I was getting opposition. And so I'm downtown Atlanta 
and Centennial Park is down where the Olympics were, and it's this really cool park. And I was wrestling with God, man. I was just ticked. And I was feeling sorry for myself again. There seems to be a pattern. And so I'm like, what are you going to do? You're going to call me back in? And then all of a sudden, my ride or die, where are they at? Phone ain't been ringing. Why are they mad at me? I'm serving you. You're really going to do this to me again? I mean, you would have thought I'd learn my lesson the first time. But this time, it wasn't me just, I wasn't mad. I was just working it out. Like being real with him. You know what I'm saying? And so, and I, I probably exaggerate a bit. I don't know what I look like, but I probably looked a little crazy talking to myself. And coming toward me was this fascinating couple. And the brother, they, they obviously were homeless. And so, cause I looked and the brother had tattered clothes. He was old and he had this chiseled face, these, these grooves cut into his face by the weather. And he had long silver war, weather torn dreads this long silver beard, and he was fascinating looking. And then next to him was this frail little woman that looked like she might have been standing on a street corner the night before. And so I didn't pay a lot of attention, but I saw him. And as I passed by, he said, I like your T-shirt, son. And I said, excuse me, sir? He said, your T-shirt, what does it mean? And I said, eracism, like erase racism. And he goes, I like that. I said, thank you, sir. And I reached out my hand. And I said, my name's Kit. And he said, Abraham. And I said, Abraham, <laughs> I like that. And he's just like, and then I said, who's your lady friend? And he said, Sarah. And I said, come on, Abraham. Abraham and Sarah, really? And he's like, and they're both just staring at me. And I said, much respect, Miss <laughs> Sarah. Nice to meet you. And I was about to walk off. And he said, I have something to tell you, son. And I said, um, what can I do for you, sir? He said, and I quote, those who oppose you are afraid. Do not stop speaking about what you have seen and heard. <laughs> I looked at him about like I did when Beelzebub got in my face. I was just like, whoa. And I said, were you sent here to tell me that? And he said, yes, sir, I was. And then they did their little bow and they walked on. And I stood there and I was like, man, it reminded me in one of the days you're going to study about when Daniel began to pray and Gabriel was released in swift flight and came and answered his prayer as he was praying. I've always thought, man, that would be so cool. And that's exactly what happened. You tell me that God is not in the miracle business Tell me he is not stalking you. Tell me that he's not. His fingerprints are all around us. But yet if we're stuck on ourselves or self-pity like I have been or if I'm mad at other people or I'm disillusioned or I'm in the middle of a storm and I'm blaming God, I can't see him. I certainly can't hear him. This ride is going to be about seeing your signs. And we're going to be talking a lot about the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit, he is so much more than I think many of us have ever dreamed of. He is so real. I mean, the Father has become Abba to me. Nature, the way that God created nature in the universe is a mother, and that's Ima. Jesus is the big brother, Yeshua. And then the Spirit is the best friend, Ruach. And you've got the family of God, Abba and Ima, Isa, Yeshua, Ruach, surrounded me. And I needed it because I was by myself traveling around the world. And I almost slipped 
because I didn't have brothers around me. And then over these last five years, God has been sending brothers around me. And now I've got beautiful relationships. And now I get to do it again because, Steve, I dare you not to be my friend. We are going to be friends. And God is going to continue. And and we all need that. And God knows I need it. And the greatest miracle of my life, and I'll try to take a breath after this, is what he did for my marriage. Because after all I'd been through, when I was on that ride, me and the spirit, slaying dragons and taking hills, and I left the maiden back at the castle. And I didn't take her on this ride. And this was, this was my second go-around. And over the last five years, God has taken a marriage that really was a passing each other in the night. And he's given a man that never believed that he could have true intimacy. And he gave it to me. And I've got one ride or die. Well, I'm a mama's boy. Mama's ride or die. And my kids, my wife, my God, she knows me better than anybody on the planet. And she is my more than suitable helper. I don't deserve her. And so he's given me that. I am the prodigal son. And what I want to do over the next, you know, few weeks is just to share a process. And we're going to go through this project together. And you're going to find parts of yourself maybe that you haven't met. It's that potential that root symbolizes. But, Steve, thank you so much for allowing me to have this much time to share my story. God bless. But I want to really, really, really encourage those that are in a very tough spot right now. And inside, your heart is not leaping about this. And I want you to remember, as you read the Gospels, watch who Jesus is drawn to and watch who he's not drawn to. He seeks out and he finds the lonely and the brokenhearted and those that are desperate and have nothing left. So the people that I just described, those that are are feeling hopeless, discouraged, depressed, lonely, forgotten about, You know, nobody even sees me anymore. You are absolutely just read your Bible and watch the way Jesus is drawn to people. And he's going to you're going to see him. And I want you to see him and look in his eyes. And we're going to be asking questions each week. Next week, we're going to ask the first discussion question, which is, do you want to get well? And so why don't we just kind of tonight, let's leave it with that is regardless of where your faith is or isn't, where your relationship with God, how it feels whether you feel close to him or not, let's just suspend all that and just say, I want to get well. That's all I know is I want to get well and I want to be close to him. And so please, tomorrow, join us. Anybody that's being tempted to just say, ah, bump it. I don't want to do that. Join us. It's going to be a miracle territory. And, And the ones that feel the furthest away, sometimes you're the closest to your miracle. Because you're finally at that spot where you got nothing left. You need a, you need a miracle, and he always shows up. So, Steve, thank you for tonight. And uh, I love your church, man. I'm excited. You've just listened to the West Side Podcast. For more information about our ministry, please visit thewestsidechurch.com or laicc.net.